0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for November 2019, volume 57, number 11. My name's David Fazakli, DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. So James, this month you've written an editorial and called it Meeting Quoff Hypertension Targets but Failing the Patient. So can you say a bit more about it?
1: Yeah, so this was, I think, my attempt to look at two possibly paradoxical elements going on for general practice. We have the new NICE guidance, which has tightened up how we should be controlling blood pressure in patients. So there's been quite a lot of discussion about this in the medical news. But also in addition to that, we have new QOF payment thresholds, so quality and outcomes framework payments thresholds have changed and they've also been tightened. And I think I was looking at this and looking at a Cochrane review which was looking at the treatment of hypertension. And I was struck by the fact that in these Cochrane reviews, the workers suggested that we could only expect 60% of our patients to reach their blood pressure target. And these are patients who have been selected for this research, so they are not going to possibly be similar to a lot of our patients who are frail, elderly, with multiple uh, long-term conditions. So I was just aware that I wanted to sort of pick out that issue that at one point, you know, we're expected, you know, the high level target for QUOF now for the over 80 year olds is that 80% of our patients should have a blood pressure control of better than 150 over 90. That's the highest target for QUOF,
0: And yet Cochrane is making it very clear that that really is unobtainable. So even with best practice in a clinical trial, controlled situation and lots of intervention, people you may only get 60% to target.
1: That's right. And of course, what we also know is that pushing, particularly elderly patients' blood pressure lower, is likely to perhaps be counterproductive. We know that therapeutic complexity leads to more hospitalisation. And we also know that there are, there are subgroups of the elderly where deprescribing actually leads to considerable benefits. So I think w- what my editorial was really about was was making sure that GPs recognise that, actually, if we push too hard with our our quaff targets we are likely to be doing our patients a disservice
0: so what is the likely impact of the new quaff targets if if in england it's pushing people to get 80 percent to the blood pressure target what will happen
1: well i think there's a real risk that um, we'll have patients who get postural hypotension and have falls that will have complexity of medication so it'll actually lead to more hospitalizations rather than actually reduce cardiovascular mortality and i and i think what's important there is a real balance here because we do know that actually treating blood pressure in the elderly with all the other issues, you know, taken into account, is beneficial. In fact, it's they're one of the most beneficial groups of patients to treat for high blood pressure. So if you look at numbers needed to treat, for example, to prevent cardiovascular mortality, it's about 35 over two years. But what we've got to do, I think, is no longer just look at the definition of the parameters of a disease or its risk factors. We've got to include the patient individual factors, things like frailty, Pharmacy, and actually also their their wishes you know how much medication load are they willing to take so I think it's very much about making sure that we provide individualized medical care not just focused on NICE
0: and COF. Also remembering that within the new framework you can exception report people.
1: Yeah sorry that's a very good point absolutely so one thing that COF has done is that it's actually. F- freed up the exception reporting to make it much more flexible for doctor and patient to come to an understanding and record that understanding without the sense that you've exception reported in that respect
0: so if that target is inappropriate for that patient you could still exclude them correct yes that's
1: right and and I think that's that's very welcome because I think it allows patients and doctors to have a much more complex discussion about treatment and the benefits of it
0: or not. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, And our first main article this month is first in a series that will be appearing over several months. So commissioned by Joanna Gerling, one of our board members, and she's actually written the first article. So the series is about prescribing for pregnancy, and the first one looks at general pre-pregnancy care, Uh, what do we cover so this is this is a fantastic article i have to say have i ever done this
1: before but i'm not sure i have but i think if you can't see this article you should Download it because I think if you're in general practice, if you deal with preconceptual and pre pregnancy care, this is all you need to know about that. I think Joanna Gudding's done a fantastic job. I mean, she covers it very comprehensively. First of all, she talks about the fact that only 66% of pregnancies in the UK are described by the mother as having been planned. And therefore, we as practitioners need to recognize that and be ready to discuss preconceptual care with women coming to see us who perhaps are coming to see us about contraception or about other issues. Because if we're going to get this right, and there's real benefits in getting pre-pregnancy care right, then we need to do it before people get pregnant. Because often there are things we need to do, like immunisation status, which you can only do whilst the woman is, is uh, not pregnant. So we start talking about that, and then she covers the key areas that we need to look at uh, in pre-pregnancy care.
0: And those include things like the folic acid issues, BMI, alcohol smoking?
1: Yeah, rubella status. Um, I I was particularly taken with the optimizing BMI um, section, which I was unaware of the significant risk associated with having a BMI over 30, not just increased risk of miscarriage, but postpartum hemorrhage, gestational issues, uh, venous thrombotic embolic disease, cesarean sections, and also the fact that a child of a overweight woman is at risk of increased risk of congenital abnormality, stillbirth, and neonatal death. So I was really taken by that section. I think it's an area that I hadn't
0: really recognised as being such an important area. And one of the other issues that I Joanna is keen to emphasize is for women who have got a long-term condition that requires medical treatment, so they're taking medicines to manage their condition, that thought is given to what happens to those medicines once she becomes pregnant not just stopping them not just saying i can't take them but about optimizing their use so that over the course of the pregnancy there is a planned intervention for how you manage those medicines to minimize harms from those medicines but also maximize benefit i agree and i think there was a there was a sentence which really
1: struck me as being really significant and that was she says continuing medicines is often the safest option and that I think you know you think can that be right and of course she goes on to point out that actually if you suddenly stop treatments and you get an exacerbation of an ongoing condition you may require more potent treatments to deal with that and actually that might create worse outcomes. So whilst we're all aware of the issues particularly around valproate but also other treatments that we use in women of childbearing age actually
0: for many women actually stopping the medication is not the safest option so a panic knee-jerk reaction and saying i'm pregnant i must stop no don't talk to your healthcare professional and work out what the best strategy is for your your condition absolutely right and hopefully have that discussion even before you're pregnant and then the future articles just as a a kind of taste of what we've got to come we've got certainly one on asthma one on mental health conditions one on epilepsy one on diabetes and may, maybe more so the series over the next few months which cover what to do with medicines in those situations
1: yeah it's, it's a really comprehensive plan and it's i'm really pleased we've managed to get this off the ground and and all
0: uh, credit to joanna for doing that okay thank you and case report this month we've republished another from bmj case reports this one's on a pixie ban. Uh, what happened? So this is a case report of a
1: apixaban seemingly inducing acute interstitial nephritis in a 70-year-old man who had hypertension, high cholesterol and atrial fibrillation. And whilst the acute interstitial nephritis is perhaps a sideline, I think what this case report highlights is that these DOACs are all excreted by the kidneys and therefore it's really important that we understand baseline function of kidneys before we start treatment on these patients and that we monitor them carefully. And certainly I think one thing that does trip us up as clinicians is how each DOAC is handled or handles impaired renal function differently. So it's really important that with these drugs which are now becoming very commonly used in primary care that we really understand how each of them works and we don't get tripped up by missing the fact that because a patient has reached a certain age or their renal function has dropped to a certain threshold that we need to be reviewing
0: their their um, dosage levels. I guess what was important for me from this was that as these drugs become or are, have become much more widely used we will see odd adverse effects beginning to appear and being reported. And this was a good reminder that it may not have seen much in the way of acute interstitial nephritis so far, but that's not to say we won't see more of it in the future.
1: Absolutely true. As Andrew Herxheimer always used to say, the one thing you never know about a drug when you first start using it is its long-term
0: consequences. And I had a quick look in the summary of product char- characteristics, and it it doesn't mention the only, only renal adverse effect I could see listed was hematuria. Uh, and in the MHRA yellow card reports, there were two cases of interstitial nephritis associated with the PICSBAM reported so far. So who knows whether this is something we'll see more of. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And of
0: course, you know,
1: always remember everyone, if you see an, an adverse drug reaction in a new drug, you should yellow card it.
0: Thank you. Good reminder. Thank you, James. Uh, to read these in any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bnj.com.